Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, hello again, and welcome to episode 48. Can you believe it? Time is flying. That's so many episodes. My last episode was about choosing the ideal episode to start. So you might check that one out if you don't know where to go next from here. But don't leave because you're in for a real treat with Dr. Brooke Manville. This man has such a towering intellect. He's got his doctorate in history, and he has these great pieces that are so thoughtful on Forbes.com. And he really just brings that sense of perspective to all his his thinking on numerous topics that affect you and your regular professional work life. So you're going to learn one, how to deal with wicked problems. Two, how to channel your imagination for extra creativity. And three, what is the trap of advocacy and why you should avoid it. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep48. And if you just want those particular takeaways faster, sign up for the Gold Nugget email list over at awesomeatyourjob.com where you'll get those pieces in an email you can read in under two minutes. Here's a bit about Brooke. Brooke Manville is principal of Brooke Manville LLC, providing consulting and executive development on strategy and organization. He publishes on leadership networks and learning communities at Forbes and elsewhere. He coaches leaders on their organizational effectiveness in the context of a hyper-connected world. He's a former partner at McKinsey and Company's organization practice and was the firm's first director of knowledge management and has held senior positions at Saba Software and United Way of America. His first job was as an assistant professor of history at Northwestern University near Chicago. Oh, yeah. Teaching and publishing on classical Greek democracy. He's a graduate of Yale and Oxford. Brooke and his family live in Metro Washington, D.C. Here's Brooke. Brooke, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. I'm glad to be here. So can you tell us when you're not writing books and and Forbes articles, uh, what are you doing for fun? What else is keeping you busy? I like to travel. Uh, I was recently in Cuba, uh, which is quite exciting given the political change there. I went hiking with my wife in Patagonia uh, a couple months after that, which was really awe-inspiring. Oh, yeah. And uh, I tend to fit in the odd tennis game from time to time to keep myself sharp with my, uh, you know, waning athletic ability. So (laughs) a little bit of that, too. I think my roommate just left for a tennis lesson. (laughs) Good. Well, you have have so much good stuff uh, up on Forbes. And so I just kind of want to jump right into a couple of your articles that uh, I was enjoying recently. Could you share with us a little bit of what are some of the ideal leadership practices when it comes to wicked problem solving? Yeah, sure. I got interested in uh, problem solving kind of through the back door that I've been studying for a long time, decision making and collaboration for innovation you know, a lot of those lead back to some kind of problem solving. And uh, I met uh, a researcher who's uh, been studying this for years. And this particular type of problem solving called wicked, it's kind of a jargon word, but it basically means, you know, really big thorny problems where the problems keep changing, uh, where you're never completely done where there are many, many different stakeholders, where the the whole approach to how to solve the problem at the beginning is not even clear, let alone what the answer is. 
maybe one of the classic uh, wicked problems was the um, the discovery or the or the beginning of what led to the discovery of AIDS, the uh, the mm-hmm. HIV outbreak. Of course, climate change is probably another one. And over time, there's been a sort of a methodology that's evolved about how do you actually tackle these kinds of problems. And it's all about, you know, building some kind of collaboration and collective intelligence with a group of of people and inevitably, you know, a broader network of people to, you know, continue to uh, frame the question, uh, reframe the question as more is learned, Mm -hmm. and build uh, momentum that, you know, sustains itself over time because it will be a continuing process. Okay, so so tell us what are some of the the practices or, or questions or, or means by which you can do some some prudent framing and reframing of the question. Well, when you're dealing with with so-called wicked problems, uh, you have to take a, a sort of a system perspective. You got to realize that you're dealing with uh, a range of variables that interact with each other and a range of players that are in constant motion, if you like. And so you've got to put your arms around what is the whole system. And you need to involve as many players uh, or representatives of that system as possible. So, for example, when they started to crack the AIDS problem, there was a huge breakthrough when one of the you know, uh, doctors, doctor researchers, said, you know, we can't really understand this well enough unless we actually have patients suffering this strange disease here at the table with us. So over a lot of chorus of disagreement uh, at the beginning, this doctor who's you know, now a well-known doctor at NIH, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he brought AIDS patients who were literally suffering to the table uh, to work side by side with researchers and clinicians and other people who are actually serving the ill to start to tackle, you know, what is the nature of this, of this disease and how do we begin to think about finding a vaccine or, a, or some kind of solution to managing it. So anyway, the, the notion is that, you know, daring to uh, open your arms and say uh, everybody who's a part of the, of the potential system, which I as a leader, you know, may well, you know, envision as, as one of my contributions, uh, needs to be brought together. So that, mm-hmm. that's really, really critical. Uh, another off-thrown-around term uh, in, in leadership discussions, but it's, it's so important for any kind of collaborative innovation or creativity or, or, or problem-solving, particularly of this sort, when you have lots of different stakeholders, is building trust. The whole game is about essentially putting people in a safe frame of mind and a relaxed frame of mind so they can be the best that they can be, so that they can learn from each other, that they can contribute to each other, and as soon as fear or hidden agendas creep into the room, the innovation, the problem solving shuts down. So there's a very utilitarian, uh, people often portray trust as this kind of you know, moral, social justice kind of thing, but it, it's very utilitarian. Um, it, it's all about allowing people to work together towards solutions in a much more comfortable and open way. Mm-hmm. Another theme that came out of my discussions with this researcher and some personal experience as well, is that you've got to balance kind of the short term and the long term. But more specifically, you have to build momentum for people by giving them some kind of payback or some kind of benefit that they can kind of, quote, take to the bank or take back to their home home office or their home constituency, even when the big long term and often uncertain solution is, is, is off in the future. You have to build momentum and keep people engaged, and you have to to do that by giving them some sense that progress is being made and that 
that you know some kind of short-term milestones are being met uh, that they can actually take advantage of. So you know the leadership challenge is is actively managing, you know, getting people some short-term deliverables, if you like, and maintaining their momentum and maintaining their enthusiasm so that they essentially stay on the team and keep working together for the long payoff. And so when you say payback, you're talking about, ooh, we, we've achieved something. We've, we've checked something off the list. I could feel progress. Are there other forms of payback to bear in mind there? There's kind of two things. There's the collective, you know, we, we achieve something and we can feel good about that as a group. But there's also, you know, there's a specific thing that your particular constituency has been asking for or needs. So it's being very savvy about player by player as you go around the table, you know, what do they really need? What do they need to feel like this is worth their while and their constituency's while to stay engaged? So, you know, in the case of AIDS, the patients, you know, they just wanted hope that they would have access to some of the, you know, latest clinical trial, even Mm -hmm. if it was unclear that the clinical trials were actually going to lead to a specific solution. But they had been shut out from a lot of those. So, you know, that was a very concrete kind of gimme, if you like, that the leaders of that of that effort were allowed to open up. And that helped, you know, sustain the momentum and keep the pressure collectively on everybody to keep working. Oh, I see. Okay. So understood. I'd also like to hear when it comes to keeping folks relaxed, other kind of best practices or, or things that show up that can really strangle the relaxation before it can flourish? Well, again, it's another cliche, but a lot of it begins with relationship building. The good leaders who are doing this kind of problem solving um, are working hard to make people feel comfortable in terms of who each other around the table are. Uh, Maybe he or she is spending some time offline with individuals to understand, you know, if you, you know, join this workshop or this session we're going to have, you know, what are your personal concerns? What are you afraid of? A lot of it is kind of emotional intelligence kind of stuff. And also just plain relationship building, getting people comfortable with somebody who maybe they've never met before or somebody who maybe has been an adversary of theirs in the past, but they have to, you know, be at the table with. So it's almost like, you know, setting up a a great dinner party, you know, making sure the right people sit next to each other and that the right topics are, 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 are talked about. I don't, want, I don't want to make light of it, but I mean, it's, it's kind of the social engineering, if you like, of a group that comes through, uh, you know, very hands-on and very, you know, empathetic treatment of, of every individual around the table. All right. And so once some, some short-term wins have been flowing there, uh, what comes next? Well, I think there's a, you know, there's a whole process of uh, kind of what, what, you know, to use some jargon is called adaptive learning. And, you know, that's a fancy word for essentially continuing to assess what have we learned, what's different than what we believed a week ago, in light of what we now have, you know, reflected upon and seen is either different or not working, what would we do now? But systematically doing that and not kind of doing it accidentally, I mean, periodically pausing, reflecting, assessing, uh, and then reframing as necessary the problem. Uh, it may be well that you start out, you know, the, the process saying the three core questions are this, this, and this. And then after a month, you say, you know what, only two of those questions are right. We, we completely missed the third one. The real third question is this. And to be willing to change that and to get everybody on the same page, and again, to institutionalize that kind of pause, reflect, and reframe is a very critical uh, aspect of, of this kind of problem solving. And it, it's, a, it's a form of adaptive learning, that you're adapting 
your process and you're adapting your 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 methodology, if you like, you know, periodically and in a structural way as you learn new things and, and frankly discard things that were either wrong or were mistaken assumptions. And I'm wondering there, I guess that, that really does take some of the trust and relationship building so that folks don't kind of plant their heels in the ground like, no, this was my idea, this was my kind of pet uh, picture for what happened there. And not take it, you know, personally. Um, And that's a very hard kind of culture to establish in a room. I was talking to another uh, researcher recently. Uh, I've got another blog coming out about sort of what's called, you know, big teaming, uh, working with a Harvard Business School professor named Amy Edmondson, who just wrote a book about this. But she talks all about what's called the... um, the trap of advocacy, which is when a leader gets very enthusiastic about a vision or maybe in a problem-solving situation, it's about his or her idea of what the answer is or the solution, and starts pushing harder and harder to get people sort of excited about working on it. The act of advocacy, even though it's well-intended, can often um, shut down the learning because people start to feel like, well, he or she is so in love with this idea. Like, I don't want to puncture his balloon. I don't want to. I don't want to raise my hand and say, you know, I actually think there's some data that says it's it's not exactly what you say. So you have to. On the one, on the other hand, if you're not enthusiastic and sort of in an advocacy mode, people wonder, like, well, you know, what's what's going to happen? Is this for real? Is this leader committed to this process or not? Am I on the right team here working on this? So it's a very delicate balance about kind of moving the group collectively forward, but being very open to both admit that you might be wrong or hearing somebody else's ideas. And I think that's another aspect that's important. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. And I remember this is one of Bain's operating principles was the, the openness to the 1% possibility. And that possibility being, you know, that you're dead wrong, that uh, your assumptions yeah. are totally mistaken here. Exactly. And that's hard for a lot of leaders. I mean, many leaders, I mean, literally self-define as I'm the person who's most often right, or even 100% right 100% of the time. And in any of these kind of collective processes, that's actually um, a huge danger and even an obstacle because it, 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 it shuts down exactly where the power of the solution building is going to come, which is the people around the table. Okay. So, so we got the learning and, and then what happens? It's an iterative process. So, you know, usually these things take place over a long time. So I'd say there's probably another couple of things to mention. One is an embrace and a signaling of essentially a process of emergence. And by that, it's that it's not so much that the answer is known and that we just have to find it, but it's that the answer will evolve and that it's not necessarily going to be something that is, in fact, known and hidden, but it has to be almost constructed iteratively in a way that it will literally emerge out of out of the work that we do. And again, that is a um, a counterintuitive understanding of problems uh, for many people. Uh, they they think it's you know like finding the treasure chest at the bottom of the ocean. All you have to do is keep digging. But sometimes there is no single treasure chest, and you have to sort of construct it and, and be willing to watch it come together uh, in ways and from areas and arenas that you didn't expect. So being comfortable with sort of an emergent process, I think, is part of the the leadership that has to be modeled and, and, and pursued. And then finally, you know, this is kind of complementary to a lot of things I've said, but it shows up in a lot of discussions of these kinds of situations. You know, leaders have to be willing to share power. 
but, and this is the, the caveat, not totally. And by share, it's like you have to be willing to sometimes let somebody who has either superior knowledge or superior access or superior experience take over and either have his say or have her say to, and sometimes literally just rotate, you know, taking turns at the head of the table. But signaling that, you know, you're open to not always being in charge and not always, you know, having the last say. On the other hand, leaders have to be able to understand when the whole effort is dangerously going off the rails or if there's some larger constraint that goes beyond the abilities of the people in the room or the people in the team, then then leaders do have to step in. And knowing when to step in and knowing that there is a risk of overreaching whenever you do step in as final voice is a very tricky balance. And uh, and yet it's, it's, it's so important because rarely do these kinds of projects completely self-organize. You know, there's a lot of utopianism out there about given the right network, you know, the right people always come together and solve the problem. And that's true, but it's an incomplete statement. There's always at some level a leader who is guiding, nudging, and stewarding that kind of process along in my experience. And I've, you know, I've interviewed for my Forbes column expert after expert on different aspects of collective and collaborative work, and they all say the same thing. Self-organizing is overrated. It plays some role, but it's never complete. Leaders do matter. Oh, all right. Well, that, that's a nice final word, unless there's anything else you want to say about this piece on the wicked problem solving. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think that's good. I mean, let's pause there. I mean, I think certainly people should feel free to go read the blog where it's fleshed out a little bit more formally. But I, I, I think you hit a lot of the highlights, Pete. Well, and, and it was, Ray, it's really comforting to me, especially that emergent solution piece, because I feel like I am on this like quest for the Holy Grail, particularly when it comes to marketing. You know, I'm thinking, okay, this podcast is 10x the size it was at launch. That's exciting. But growth is slowing down a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. What do I find? Where's the solution? Is it Instagram? Is it Snapchat? What do I need to be doing? And then to think that, no, hey, it's emergent and we're going to kind of figure out over time and in conversation and dialogue with listeners and, and others, what works best. It, it kind of lets me chill out a little bit. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, it, it, even in my Forbes column, it's been, a, it's been an incredible education because I watch carefully, you know, which of the pieces I write get the most page views. And some of the ones that I thought were, you know, that I wrote were sure winners, did okay, but but nothing great. And then others that I thought were, you know, just kind of maybe yes, maybe no, but they they took off. And it's very, very hard to predict. And you have to be very humble uh, at one level uh, and realize that sometimes, you know, the crowd or the market knows more than you do. In fact, it often does. And you just have to honor that. Again, it's another aspect of sort of an emergent process that you have to embrace. Yeah, we may find that the crowd overwhelmingly downloads Brooke Manville episode in <laughs> massive proportions. And then we know. Yeah, well... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the political currents going on now is another example of that. I mean, my God, you talk about the uh, the Brexit or you know the candidacy of of Donald Trump or the non candidacy of Jeb Bush. All those things were such surprises versus you know the quote expert opinion of what mm, was going to happen. Right. And it's just an example of you know stuff emerges and you have to kind of deal with it. And at its best, you embrace it, or at least you embrace the process, even if you don't always like the answer. You know, stuff emerges and you got to kind of deal with it. Might make it to the pulled quote. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. That's the one to beat right now. <laughs> All right. 
Okay. Well, so now let's talk a little bit about your creating creativity article. So that's pretty fun. You were interviewing a, a theatrical director and, and coming up with some, some key takeaways there. Well, it started because I was, uh, I'm a fan of the theater and uh, I had seen um, a couple of productions of this guy. His name is Ethan McSweeney. And uh, I had by chance the Shakespeare director, or at least I saw him in the Shakespeare Theater, which I belong to here in Washington, D.C. And I had a chance to hear him at a lecture. And as I was hearing him talk about uh, putting on some of his plays, I was struck how unlike a certain number of you know, directors or film directors who I've heard, you know, interviewed, it, it wasn't all about him. It was all about how how did he, you know, sort of discover and bring out the best of the actors and the other people in the, uh, in the company um, that he was working for. And he was very, you know, thoughtful about it. And he had a real sort of management perspective on this, even though he's quite a creative guy. And so I uh, asked him if I could interview him, and we had a series of conversations about it, and it became clear that he had a real, he had never really articulated it. In fact, he enjoyed our conversation because it helped him sort of, you know, bring those ideas forward. But he, he actually had a whole kind of, you know, uh, sort of theory of how to develop, you know, um, creative productions. And so I captured those in two back-to-back blogs that I wrote, and they're very interesting. Um, interestingly enough, some of the themes are, are, are similar to what we were just talking about, problem solving. Um, I mean, again, his, his, his approach, and again, not all directors do this, but, you know, certainly some do, and he certainly does. Um, you know, they think about um, not so much their own vision, although they don't, you know, suppress it, but they think about their own vision in concert with a vision that, you know, is adaptive, evolved, and even co-created with actors and set designers and lighting designers and, and that kind of thing. So everything that he, he is doing is about, again, creating a level of comfort and safety uh, of people so that they can co-create with him. Um, they're spending a lot of time, you know, improvising and trying things out, and he's very open to, you know, a different way of approaching an interpretation of a particular character, a particular scene to, um, you know, one character's uh, own interpretation. Um, but he's also willing to sometimes say, you know, I, I don't think this is going to work. And, you know, he has the sort of credibility to, to be able to enforce that. But he's, it's a balancing act. But anyway, back to the, the, the analogy. So, you know, it's about creating a collective product of intelligence or a collective product of creativity. But, it's done so with a process that creates transparency, creates trust, creates truthfulness, um, and allows, in many cases, the, the answers to emerge as opposed to being directed. Mm. Well, yeah, that, that's very in- intriguing. So could you maybe offer a couple more examples of, of how that comes to life in practice? So we, we got a scene yeah. and he has one vision for how it should go. And then uh, the, an actor has a different perspective. And could you maybe paint the yeah. picture for us? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I he actually invited me to... Um, you know, some of the rehearsals, and it was interesting watching him. He was doing a scene um, in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and there's a scene where there's a play within a play, and all the, you know, the tradesmen are sort of putting together this clumsy play in a clumsy way about Pyramus and, and, and Thisbe, and, um, which is a sort of a Greek myth about two lovers. 
and of course it's an uproarious scene within the within the play and you know normally it's played in a fairly slapstick sort of way but he introduced some very serious um elements to it having to do with sort of the the the, the social you know the social status of these different uh tradesmen in the world Elizabeth and and that came out through conversations that some of the actors were having with him he hadn't originally thought about that they were their own you know uh learned practitioners and some of them said you know I think if instead of you know making me a buffoon in this in this part of the of the of the scene, you know why don't I why don't I show some pain and some agony because I'm struggling you know with something that I I don't know how to do and I you know that will be comic but it'll be comic in a more char- sort of Charlie Chaplin kind of way. Um, so there were lots of examples like that uh, that he he walked me through. You know these kinds of you know half improvised half guided collaborations. And there's lots of tiny little pieces through a three-hour play that are that are constructed. You know, it's all below the surface, and it's all kind of emergent of the sort we see. And the kind of the stewarding of all these little co-created pieces is, I think, what what a real creative approach of the sort that he takes anyway. You know, does and and, and can be very effective. And I think it's a model for for leaders. You know, doing any kind of creative or collaborative work. You know, being open to the good ideas and the surprises of the people working with you, being willing to co-create those those innovations, but also having enough of a firm idea about what overall you're trying to accomplish, so that when something comes up as clever and you know uh, and empowering as it might be, if it really doesn't fit, you have to say, you know, no, this one has to go to the cutting room floor. We can't use it, but, you know, thanks thanks for trying. And, uh, and, and people, and then, you know, making people feel not so bad that that particular idea didn't get used. So I think that's a real art of kind of creative leadership, whether you're problem solving or doing creative uh, innovation or anything like that. Oh, and that, that's so interesting. And some, I'm making some connections over here because, well, Maybe this is a controversial view, but I believe the TV series Breaking Bad is among the finest art that has been produced recently. So right. I, I don't know if you're a fan. Did you watch them? Yeah, I've seen them. Sure. Yeah. Oh, man. And Vince Gilligan, I was so I was so obsessed. I was listening to multiple podcasts about Breaking Bad at one point in time. And it's so fascinating. It's like Vince Gilligan will speak to how he had wildly outlandish ideas and the writing staff backed him away from it. It was like, no, 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 don't, don't quite do that because of ABCD. It was like, oh yeah, okay, you're right. And, and so, so here's this person that we really kind of put up on a, on a pedestal as being a, a super creative genius. And he's following kind of the same playbook in terms of, of letting others reel him in and, and him collaborating with the other writers around the table. Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, there was a new movie that was just a documentary about Yo-Yo Ma that was produced uh, called The Music of Strangers, I think it's called, which I highly recommend. Very, very fascinating. He put together this this international band called the Silk Road Ensemble, and he, you know, he handpicked accomplished but also kind of slightly rebellious musicians from all over the world to play with him and essentially fuse their music. I mean, there was somebody from Iran who played a particular kind of string instrument. There was this flute player from, I think, China. There was another person from um, from Galicia in Spain. And the whole movie is about how they 
try to fuse their music together and they're playing off of one another and sometimes clearly the 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 fusing and the collaboration is working and other times it isn't and you know yo-yo ma you know in general will not be saying a whole lot but he will step in from time to time and say you know i don't i really don't think this is working let's try it a different way and other times he just completely steps back and watches with amazement as two of the band players kind of find each other and create this entirely new sound. And he incorporates it right away. So it's this wonderful act of both sort of reaching out and in some cases guiding or even directing and other times stepping back and letting the members of the team, if I can use that term, discover the innovation and then, in, and then finding a way to integrate that. Oh. Beautiful picture, a beautiful picture. Okay, well, anything else you wanted to put out there, Brooke, associated with this, uh, these creativity pieces and the emerging collaboration before we shift gears into the fast faves? The only thing I want to say is that in my writing and a lot of the um, research and interviews that I've, I've been doing, I continue to see that the kind of themes we've been discussing are really kind of a, you know, a systemic shift for leadership, and they're increasingly important for the world. And I don't want to sort of over-dramatize it, but some of the general themes we've talked about, about, you know, finding performance across, you know, a collective group of, of people with complementary skills and experiences and even cultures, building trust to bring those people together and to make them work effectively, taking a role of sharing power so that the best ideas not only come forward but are often co-created or emerge over time. Those are themes that we're going to see again and again with increasing frequency. And as we think about some of the world's biggest problems, you know, whether it's global warming and, and climate change or you think about fixing the medical systems that, that are so broken in, in so many countries, uh, or you think about stopping terrorism. I mean, it's all about bringing together lots of different constituencies and people with different kinds of expertise, often with very different perspectives and, and bases of power. Old industrial speak, it's the silos that must be broken mm-hmm. out. But figuring out how can these really large problems not only be solved, but can we find the right kind of innovation but the leadership skill is about essentially creating this, this kind of community approach to, to problem solving and innovation. And it's just going to be so important for us in, in, in whatever realm of human endeavor lies ahead for us. So I think it's a, I think it's a major thing for, for people to be thinking about and working on. And if you have leadership aspirations, um, you know, it's definitely, uh, a, 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 I think, a very healthy framing for how to think about what leadership is going to be in the coming years. Well, I agree. And it's kind of fun to imagine what are those teams? What do they consist of associated with uh, the folks who are, are stopping terrorism or whatnot? Like what interesting new faces and voices would you, you bring around the table? Like someone who yeah. escaped from yeah. some of the areas in ISIS? Yeah, you could, you would certainly you'd bring some ex-terrorists, but you know, just to talk at the moment about something like ISIS or whatnot, you know, so much of the the devastating uh, growth of that entity has been because they're such superb storytellers of certain ideology, uh, and they're using social media. 
So my two cents on the question is, is one of the forces of good that have to be at the tables, we need more people who are good, who are good at telling stories about the good things in, in life. You know, mm-hmm. where are the counter narratives? You know, so it's not just about intelligence and arms and borders. It's also about storytelling. And it's also going to be about citizen engagement because, you know, the police can't do everything. We're going to need people in neighborhoods and people in communities playing their role to guard against unattended packages and so on. So when you think about all the different players that have to be working together to really stop that, it's a much bigger circle of people than I think most of our current efforts are. Mm. Well, that is a lovely final point. And and with that, I'd, I'd love to get your take on some of your favorite things here. Yeah, sure. So could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I'm a great fan of Mark Twain, and I love the quote. I, I may not get it exactly right, but it's it goes something like, uh, always do the right thing. Some people will like it, and the rest will be astonished. <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it's a kind of a funny quote, which reminds you that, you know, most people don't actually do the right thing. And that, you know, I try to in my in my consulting work and, you know, when I'm writing or doing, you know, it's often harder, but going the extra mile to either make the ethical call or do a little bit extra homework or to, or to, or to really bring something to the right level of um, quality, you know, is a rarity and, you know, one should strive for it. All right. And how about a favorite study or a piece of research? There's no single study that I... I point to again and again, I do have a a bias towards, I'll call it the facts behind the stories. There are journalists and there are bloggers and there are uh, researchers who, this is more of a type, they take a common belief or a common narrative or a sort of a mythology that's out in the public space and they they ask, what are the facts actually about this, Mm. about this topic? So, for example, I've been I was reading some research the other day about, you know, is, you know, has the war on poverty actually worked or how much do the people who support Donald Trump actually represent ill-educated, low-income white males? And often the answers to those kind of popular wisdom questions are counterintuitive answers that, well, in fact, it's not what the, the narrative says. And so I think, you know, looking at the facts and really understanding it, and people who try to do that to continually adjust this avalanche of, of sort of, you know, mythologies that, you know, rocket across, you know, all the social networks and the media today, I think is a really valuable kind of study or kind of research to, to pursue. So I, I look for all sorts of versions of that. Oh, intriguing. And how about a favorite book? There's books all through history and, and, and literature. I mean, it's a, it's a long list. Probably way back in my past, I was actually a professor of history. And I think the most meaningful history book that I ever read was Thucydides. I still revere that study of, of history. Uh, it was this very emotional, but at the same time, ultimately rational look at what went wrong with a great idea called democracy and also a, a war in support of democracy. And, and and what do we learn from that? I go back and look at Thucydides uh, all the time. Okay. And, and how about a favorite tool, whether it's a piece of hardware or software or, or gadget or extension, something you find yourself using frequently? Well, you know, there's a sort of a, an obvious answer around tools around things like, you know, Gmail, but that's, that's not really very thoughtful or, or you know, or, you know, mm-hmm. this or that browser. But 
probably the, the, the consulting tool or the thinking tool that I, I've used in my consulting days with my clients again and again. I even use it in my own decision-making. It's the classic four-box matrix, oh, yeah. uh, which is you know hard to do, easy to do, high value, low value. The shorthand of it is find the low-hanging fruit, but of course it's a little bit more than that. But it's trying to, you know, in some simple and often quick and dirty, but nonetheless systematic way, understand what's the cost and the value of, of actually doing something versus some other choice. And really mapping that out, I find that whether it's personal decisions or investment decisions or you know, helping some of my clients think about how to prioritize, you know, uh, the first three things that they should do in the in the next quarter. You know, it's it's just so useful. It's so simple. And yet so many people kind of forget about it or don't understand it uh, or haven't had experience with it. So I find that to be very, very helpful. Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, I love a good two by two. Uh, good times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a good two by two indeed. And how about a a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's boosted your effectiveness? People have written about this in recent times, and it, it used to be sort of laughed at, but it's it's a quick power nap. Um, you know, <laughs> I have my own body. Everybody has their own body rhythm and body cycle. Uh, I just find that in the late afternoon, not always so often, my clock just goes down. And instead of staring at my screen and trying to bumble along, I'll just go lie down and close my eyes for 15 minutes my iPhone, you know, timer. And uh, it works wonders. <laughs> it's, just, it's the best thing. And if I can't do that, I'll go out for a walk around the, the block or whatnot. But, you know, we are civilization today. Uh, we're so in love with sitting at our screens and, and just powering on and going and going and going. And But realizing that sometimes your productivity goes so far down, you just got to refresh yourself. So I, try, I always try to do that. It, it really does work for me. Oh, I'm a believer there. And and how about a uh, sort of a, a fan favorite nugget or, or piece that you share? It finds its way getting retweeted a lot, or or, or shared broadly, or, or kind of folks nodding their heads and taking notes when you share it. Is there any little tidbit or, or quote of yours that's quite popular? The quick answer is no, in the sense that I I don't have something that's always ready to go. But I can tell you what you know. We were talking about emergent processes and whatnot. I, you know, I used to be a college professor, and then, of course, I've been writing off and on, you know, articles and a couple of books, you know, through the years. I am always struck by, when I meet people, how somebody will pick out one particular piece of something I wrote and said, you know, the most important thing that you said in this article that I quote again and again is this, or I still remember, Professor Manville, you know, your lecture when you said, <laughs> but it's never the same thing. And so the learning is, although I guess, you know, I probably am known for a couple of things I, I've written about organizational learning and things like that. And, you know, some of the things I've written are circulated and quoted again and again. But the bigger issue for me is that if you can touch somebody in a way that they really remember one piece of something you did or one quote or one particular diagram or something like that, it's very rewarding personally to, to, to be able to make that kind of contribution to somebody. But the, but the real lesson is it's not going to always be the same thing. <laughs> you know, mm. Different people find different pearls in, in, in what you're writing or what you're thinking about. And that to me is the exciting thing. Okay. And, and how about a uh, favorite way to find you if folks want to learn more or interact with you? Where would you point them? Well, there's two places. I publish pretty regularly at Forbes. So it's um, 
forbes.com slash sites slash brookmanville and my blog is there and i do have a website at uh, brookmanville.com where uh, my forbes articles and other articles that i i I publish and have published are there and uh, i'm also on twitter at brookmanville and um Always glad to to to, uh, to correspond or to exchange things through that vehicle as well. Oh, very good. And do you have a, a favorite challenge or parting call to action that you'd leave folks with who are seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? You know, I have a quote. I don't know who it should be attributed to, but it's it's a quote that I've had uh, on the top of my desk for years, and it's that worrying is the misuse of imagination. Mm. And the reason I put that there is I probably have a tendency, uh, my wife certainly says this, to worry too much sometimes. And, you know, we, we always in any kind of job, I find, start thinking about too quickly, why is this not going to work? Why is it better for you not to do this after all? So on and so forth. And, you know, that worry or that sense of, you know, maybe no, um, it's probably a somewhat more elegant version of, of of the Nike slogan. Just do it. You know, you you, you know you you've got to not spend your imagination worrying about all the things that can go wrong. Think about all the things that not only you know can go right, but that you ought to try. So that's a quote I I like to uh, invoke from time to time. Hmm. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for for sharing your, your time and expertise here. It's, it's been a ton of fun, and I wish you lots of luck at, at Forbes and and all the cool things you're up to over there. Thank you very much, Pete. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that and you have some newfound perspectives on creativity. And if you've ever had any of that frustration, like I'm going to find the answer out there, that was really one of my big light bulb moments in this conversation is, ah, maybe this answer will evolve naturally and organically. So once again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to stuff mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep48. And I hope you'll catch us next time where we're chatting with Michelle Geelan, who has some fantastic research-based tidbits about broadcasting happiness, why that matters, not just because happiness is intrinsically cool, but also it will boost the performance of you and those you're collaborating with. So hope you check that one out and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.